For November 25th, 2013, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 282. I volunteer as hungry. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. This week, the Hunger Games catching fire. Or whoosh! <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, your, your Hunger Games is looking very flammable from where I'm sitting. <laughs> it would be shame if your Hunger Games were to catch fire, wouldn't it? Why don't you? Why don't you round up all the results of your economic production and send them to my capital, so to speak? <laughs> uh so uh yeah we're talking about the uh the movie starring jennifer lawrence and also the book so you know blanket spoiler alert and honestly if you haven't read all the hunger games is at this point shame on you first of all shame on you uh but uh we're, we're we're probably going to spoil um things that happen in the third book also the we'll we'll uh we'll be careful to say those so that you can skip thirty seconds or something uh when when we do that so spoiler alert starts now uh and now panel your question for this week um it has come to my attention that there uh, are marketing tie-ins, promotional merchandise uh, tie-ins with the Hunger Games, including uh, a line of uh, ready-to-wear couture and uh, <laughs> like a line of makeup. Um, they're calling it Capital Couture, uh, and it's from Net-A-Porter. Uh, and um, there's a line of uh, Capital Beauty Studio makeup by CoverGirl. Um, and this no, and my favorite is the sandwiches. <laughs> I, I haven't seen those. I, I don't. I don't frequent has Subway. A line of, of Hunger Games sandwiches. <laughs> They're fiery, Matt. They're so fiery. They have, they the have bread. Like jalapenos on them. It's, it's Peter Malark's um, uh, special bread recipe too, right? He's the baker, right? <laughs> So, oh, don't forget the theme park. The worst of them all, the theme park. <laughs> yeah, but that's just proposed. There isn't there isn't actually a Hunger Games theme park yet, right? Where is there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Only insofar as much as all historical uh, times exist on the curvature of space time. <laughs> I guess so. I suppose there is some sort of quantum reality where wherein there is uh, already a Hunger Games theme park. In fact, there probably is some <laughs> yeah. sort of quantum reality where it's not a theme park, where there is an actual Hunger Games. Uh, yes. So, um, in, in honor of these, these bizarre and, and inappropriate seeming movie tie-ins panel, your, your question, your task for this week is to propose another, uh, to propose for some film, a film or pop culture property of your choosing a bizarre and inappropriate movie tie-in, uh, marketing gimmick. That is a piece of merchandise, uh, that, um, someone could potentially buy. So, <laughs> so, uh, drink, it's not Peter Fenzel. First in the alphabet is Matthew Belinky. Okay, so you know how Godwin's law is when you, you invoke uh, the Nazis or Hitler in the course to make an argument? I'm going to create a, a, a new sort of corollary, which is Belinky's law, and that's when you make an off-color joke about Sophie's choice. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> So I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna this is not my real answer but I'm th- I'm throwing it out as a as a secondary answer which is just Sophie's choice of feminine hygiene product. Um, 
That's uh, one, but that's uh, not my real one. Terrible. That would be that would be I blinky lawed myself. Um, I'm gonna go with I really like there will be blood, and I feel like there could be a tie-in that actually does some good with the Red Cross. So, like, all I'm thinking is, like, it's, it's sort of like Daniel Day-Lewis appears sort of against a, a plain backdrop. And he's like, hello, my name is Daniel Plainview. This is my son and partner, H.W. Plainview. And he is badly in need of bone marrow. Um, and, you know, he can really... <laughs> <laughs> and so remember, like and remember, blood, if, and then like written in blood beneath that is like and bone marrow question mark. And and remember, if you donate bone marrow, there will be blood. <laughs> okay, sure. I I thought you were going to go the milkshake route with that and have oh, yeah. you know, right? Have McDonald's offer a line of there will be blood milkshakes uh, that perhaps are red in color, like the uh, the shamrock shakes are green in color. <laughs> That's better. <laughs> I said that. Well, why did I think of the Red Cross? <laughs> Silly. Uh, well, uh, you know, blood. Um, all right, Pete Fenzel, next in the alphabet. <laughs> See, like, I've, I've just got football on the brain. I mean, if, I, if Matt gets to do a silly one and then a real run, my, my <laughs> silly one... <laughs> My silly one is that we have we have NFL Red Zone at my home, and NFL Red Zone is sponsored by the all new Chevy Silverado. And so, what I really want to see is, and it's just they just there's no commercials. They just are always talking about this truck all the time. And I'm just like imagining it like just soaring, like carrying Matt Damon to Elysium, or like <laughs> carrying like Sandra Bullock through the vacuum of space, or like I'm imagining it like surfacing next to Robert Redford's like drowned little raft, and all is lost. Like the all is lost new Chevy Silverado here to carry you. Uh, but what I really wanted to think, and what I think really people would really buy, would be um, Oakley Dark Thirties uh, for uh, <laughs> for what you want to see and what you don't want to see, <laughs> right? Like which is uh, the cool, the actual shades that were actually worn by SEAL Team Six when they killed Osama bin Laden and or uh, by torturers. Was it night? <laughs> If you're like if you're like an elite operator, do you wear sunglasses at night? Well, so that's what makes the ad especially. Yeah, so you can see, so you can, so you <laughs> so can. You can. <laughs> no, it's so that it can be the night that you killed Osama bin Laden every day. That's why you wear the Oakley Dark Thirties. Is uh, so you're always covered in the shadow of darkness of uh, the like unknowing uh, and unquestioning support of teeming multitude. Right. Of, of uh, war-hungry civilians. So there you go. Absolutely. Well, thank oh, you, Pete. I will, I will never forget. <laughs> oh, man. Make sure that you uh, – make sure that you Ryan Gosling drive the all-new Chevy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just going to keep popping those in there. <laughs> look down. Look down. It's the all-new Chevy Silverado. Look down. <laughs> Uh, Mark Lee. My, mine is also vehicle themed. So um, I, I live in New York City, as, as several of the other overthinkers do, and we often take uh, yellow cabs, taxi cabs. And a few years ago, they introduced a um, a screen in the back seat, which really annoyingly plays a video with sound that you can't turn off immediately. You have to let it play its sort of intro thing. In you know, the idea being that in the back seat of a taxi, you're very much a captive audience, and it displays very basic information about. The ride, the rates, um, what to do if you have an issue with the with the cab ride, that sort of thing. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to uh, you know do a taxi driver tie-in to the taxi drive the taxi experience. What I really want is like a CGI recreation of a young Robert De Niro coming on saying, "Hi, 
This is Travis Bickle <laughs> for the New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission. Your base fare is two fifty per ride with a surcharge of blah blah per mile. If you have any issues, please dial three one one to report uh, to report any issues with this. Thanks and have a great day. But he's got to be really no, he's got to be really hostile. Like, uh, listen, all you mother effers, all you human trash, all you. I can't I can't <laughs> remember the actual speech that he does. Uh, you know, the thing that's kind of jump cut again and again and again. And he's, you know, exactly. One day a rain's going to come and it's going to wash the filth off of these streets. Until then, enjoy the ride. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what yeah, I do. Like, the other way to do it is just like, you know, do it in that sort of very matter of fact tone that I just described with, with like, you know, as um, Travis Bickle's driving around in his taxi cab, like, you know, uh, executing vigilante justice and trying to uh, assassinate a politician and other uh, fun things that he does in the movie. I'm just imagining the rain dissolving a series of Toyota Tacomas and Dodge Durangos <laughs> until all that's left is Travis Pickle and the all-new Chevy <laughs> Can we? Uh... And Candace Everdeen is in, the, is in the bed of the truck with bow and arrow just to show that it's about freedom. Wearing, wearing capital couture. So, uh, so God made a farmer. So the... Um... Uh, yeah, I I think that's great. I also think that a crazy taxi uh, tie-in in your oh, New York yeah. taxi cab ride, <laughs> ride might be uh, might be really interesting. Um, when I was uh, in, oh, when did the Berlin Wall come down? Um, I was in 1989. Yeah, I was in uh, fifth grade, fourth or fifth grade, I think when that when that happened, and um, some of my uh, classmates got commemorative like souvenir pieces of the berlin wall right uh that was just a rock i suppose it could have been any rock but it was purported to be an actual piece of the the berlin wall that had been you know pickaxed out when the berlin wall came down um apparently they had asbestos in it and so it actually probably wasn't that helpful like you know sending that through the mail and giving it to your kid don't eat it I mean, it's fine. You're not going to, like, you know, sleep with it. Yeah, well, as long as, you, know, had, as, as, long as you don't, like, touch it or, or um, you know, lick your hands or something because kids never put things in their mouths. Or what, Well, I suppose we were in fifth grade. So if we put, <laughs> a, if we put it in our mouths, we kind of deserved what, we, what was coming to us. Um, wow, that's inappropriate also because what's coming is cancer, I think, when you lick asbestos. Moving on. Um, so, uh, communist rock. Don't so, chew it. So this is, <laughs> this is all preamble to, to my idea. My product tie in is for Star Wars, uh, which, you know, is no stranger to, um, any and every kind of, of product tie in. And this is a, a commemorative Alderaan rock. That is a piece. <laughs> it's a piece of the planet Alderaan <laughs> uh, that was blown up. That was uh, atomized, vaporized in, until nothing but these small, you know, uh, baseball-sized stones remained. And you can uh, you can get it. And it's um, you know it's for the the budding scientist and mineral collector inside every Star Wars fan. Uh, it's for you know the completist who needs every. So it's for the 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 parent who wants to pass on to their children a piece of star wars history it's uh it's an actual piece of of it's vaporized for of uh of genocide as well it's like a million bargains cried out in terror and, <laughs> and also this is this is a little known fact but sort of kal-el style if you bring a piece of that rock towards princess leia she becomes really weak <laughs> that's like her that's her that's her kryptonite if you will <laughs> 
Does that happen to Katniss Everdeen and Cole? Is like Cole like Katniss Everdeen's kryptonite because it comes from the her home district and like has the once radiation. again don't eat it. <laughs> <laughs> the Hunger Games. No matter how hungry you get, don't lick the coal. Yeah, exactly. By the way, I got an, I got another one. Uh, can, can we do some sort of Timberland tie-in with the Wolfgang Peterson movie Das Boot? <laughs> das. Oh. My my college girlfriend who spoke German insisted it was pronounced das Boot, das Boot, you know, and not das Boot the way it's the way it's spelled. So you know, so she ruined all my fun basically. I mean, whatever. Look, we we won the war, so it's pronounced das Boot. <laughs> Look deep under the Straits of Gibraltar, there is no pedantry. All right, there's only fear. <laughs> okay, we talked a tie-ins for the Hunger Games and otherwise. Um, but recently, I visited Alcatraz Island in uh, in San Francisco, obviously, and I was shocked and dismayed actually that they had no tie-ins whatsoever to the movie The Rock. There, they didn't even have copies of the DVD for sale in the office. I mean, like, talk about missed opportunity for synergy there. Yeah. Right? Did you not? Did and you I not crossed- get like an Alcatraz Triathlon T-shirt that's uh, Dig Dash Dive? Right, your uh, your three basic you know triathlon <laughs> sports. <laughs> that's nice. Yeah, there's plenty of merchandising there to be had for sure, but none at all involving Nick Cage, Sean Connery, and or Ed Harris. I mean, I'm still a huge advocate for renaming the Charlestown Bridge the Jeremy Renner Bridge <laughs> because there's, it's the only bridge then that crosses that river that has nothing else to recommend it other than Jeremy Renner <laughs> fleeing from his life across it during a movie. Yeah. So, But I don't know. That's, that's a Boston joke that doesn't play outside the, the city, I suppose. So all of you who love the town can laugh at how witty I am. <laughs> oh, man. I'm also sad because the Giants lost, guys. I'm sorry I'm bummed out. The Giants played the Cowboys tonight. I know we don't talk about sports a lot, but they were, they were coming back. The 10-6 and 6 dream was alive, and now it's not alive some more. So I apologize <laughs> if I seem a little bit down. So we could make some sort of tie into that great tragedy of the Giants losing to the Cowboys, but I feel like it, it's, it requires more solemnity than that. It's, it's as if the entire team was sent into the arena. <laughs> you know, against other competitors. Yes. And were tragically cut yeah. down by the capital's evil like, schemes. May the spread be ever in your favor. <laughs> the, the tragedy is not that Eli Manning has to fight for his life. It's that Eli Manning exists in the first place, right? It's like, that's the true tragedy. <laughs> so, <laughs> the... Um, yeah, I, I, I love how that's the, the sports defeat that has you down this weekend, Pete. <laughs> well, you know, you get hit from the left, you get hit from the right, all right? <laughs> uh... Okay, so here's an actual segue from, uh, uh, from the topic of football to that of the Hunger Games, right? Because uh, the Hunger Games writ large, we talked about this a lot. It's a commentary on a lot of things, but it's including this like sense of blood sport, bloodlust that uh, infects culture right i mean like the whole reason why um the the country in the hunger games is called panem is because it's uh, evoking the uh, the roman gladiators right panem et circus right or i don't know if my latin is correct but bread and circuses right i think the plural is like sur- by panera i thought it was just like oh, <laughs> from dystopia dystopian flatbread will take your family away hot brown pita malark bread only at panera get your pin- the bread. <laughs> get your get your pity panera panini I volunteer is hungry. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I almost hate to bring us back to the topic at hand and just keep making Don't. Uh, bread jokes. Um, so inevitably, when you know when you're making, you're having discussion about uh, gladiatorial, the gladiatorial bloodlust entertainment and things like that. Like 
you know, we, we, we have to talk about the NFL and, and the sport of football writ large, right? And with this idea that, like, these, uh, these uh, athletes are destroying their bodies for our pleasure, right? It's not nearly quite as visceral as Cadmus Everdeen shooting a dude in the chest with the bow and arrow. It sort of plays out over a longer period of time, uh, you know, with the degenerative brain disease causing repeated concussions. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's I guess it's kind of like kind of like the tobacco companies like the NFL have known for a while. Uh, right. That that this is happening and this is only sort of coming to light publicly now, or at least there's only uh, coming outcry and things like that now. I don't know. You you all went to see a uh, uh, a football game this this weekend. Was it or did you did you did you travel to the it depends the... on a defined football and defined game. Okay. <laughs> to be clear, a bunch of us went to the Yale Harvard football game. Uh, Yale was decimated on the field. They were just like dismantled in a, in a very football-y and Harvardly fashion by the Harvard football team. The less <laughs> we speak about that, the better. It wasn't that Harvardly of them. It mostly consisted of running really hard at them and knocking them over, which is not generally what you associate with being Harvardly. But yes. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, we all went to – a bunch of us went to that game, and we were also a little bit bummed out because we were annihilated, which is sad. But yeah. Um, although I do have – I do have uh, – I actually had a bunch of thoughts about this kicking around this week because I was talking – because I do CrossFit and was talking about like how CrossFit needs to deal with its steroid stuff going on at the top level. And I, I mean not to talk about that specifically but um, just to talk about this idea of gladiatorial blood sport that I think ties football back together with the Hunger Games. Um, and maybe you guys – so like – so sports, right? Sports, hashtag sports. Um, so there's like the Olympic ideal of sports, right? Which is like, we have fair competition. We, it inspires us to be better. Uh, it's sort of a way of getting away from war. It's like, uh, channeling the energies that we would otherwise use in war to sort of a positive, uh, act of self-improvement. And it also like creates an environment that's sort of safer than war is for people to survive and pursue making themselves more excellent. While it is still dangerous, uh, it is not as dangerous as war and it is also fairer. And then you have like gladiatorial sports, right? Which is like, we're acknowledging that there the people who are doing it are in a lot of danger. We don't really care about the degree of danger that they get into or that it is a great... We're not necessarily even seeing it as a lessening of danger to them than what would they would... Uh, endure were they to be in a war, right? And the purpose of the athlete in gladiatorial sport is, like, economic and political, right? It's about entertainment. It's about social control. It's about all this stuff. And how, like, it's it kind of hypocritical for us to say that we don't enjoy gladiatorial sport or to condemn it too roundly because we clearly do, and it's a clearly a big part of what we do. And, and certainly, like, you know, it's, it's kind of hypocritical to insult, you know, the, the football out of one side of your mouth and be sad when your team loses and wish they had better players with the other side of your mouth. You know what I mean? Like, and I guess... Yeah, I'm uh, totally with you. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the sport of football and, like, I'm constantly, like, internally conflicted by all the horrible things that football does yeah. to yeah, players' yeah. bodies. But that's very much baked into the Hunger Games, the, the entire series, this this sort of uh, this sort of two faced narrative. Where on the one hand, like, isn't the Hunger Games horrible? Isn't it terrible that these kids are being forced to do this? And on the other hand, like, wow, this is going to be awesome. And can't you? Are, like, isn't it? Isn't it great that we get to read another story? Aren't you glad that she's back in the Hunger Games so you get to enjoy another story about the awesome Hunger Games? Well, we're, yeah. we're back to the 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 like the undergirding. Uh, you know, tension of Western civilization, which is one of my hobby horses, and I admit I go on far too long about it. It's the donkey effing conundrum, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, sorry, not to not to beat a dead donkey or <laughs> or do other things a to hung, a, a hungry dead donkey <laughs> or or to do other things to a live one, but uh, it it 
you know, right? This is ye olde Puritan dodge, right? This is uh, uh, condemning condemning a thing gives you an excuse to sort of fixate on it, right? Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And so, so, I mean, I I get the sense that it's a slightly different dynamic operating uh, with with football, right? The the uh, I think. But I don't know. It just doesn't strike me uh, as the same way as kind of the violence in the violence in the Hunger Games. And we should talk a little bit about the violence in the Hunger Games because the, both the first and the second movie, um, though the second movie is is a better movie by by almost any measure you could come up with. Um, the the they both way tone down the violence that's in the book in order to get a uh, in order to get a PG thirteen rating and that's you know and that's interesting they go right up to the they go right up to the to the edge right in the hunger games in the second movie when uh katniss is supposed to witness the the guy who does the the three finger salute you know um to her in district 11 uh at the as the the first kind of act of defiance at the start of the book and um uh, you know the beginning of the the revolution that is uh, uh, coming in Panem or Panem, as they all say Panem, um, which to me just sounds like waiting for a gato, but never mind. Uh, <laughs> right, like they close the door so that you don't see the guy get shot, but not enough that you don't see the the uh, muzzle of the gun and the muzzle flash just as the doors are closing. Right, so they skate right up. They skate right up to the line. Of uh, of what you can show in a in a PG thirteen um, in a PG thirteen movie, and that violence. I mean, that violence is you know one of the pleasures of the book, right? And I'm we're uncomfortable talking about it as as a source of pleasure, but it's one of the reasons we go and uh, to the book, and is one of the reasons that that we enjoy, uh, you know, that we enjoy the book, right? It's I suppose it's bolder in a movie like Battle Royale. Um, and, and the social commentary is a little more coherent in a movie like Battle Royale, but, um, you know, but it is a source of, of enjoyment, right? In, in, in the film. So another, uh, thing to draw upon in this conversation is what you probably heard this before, this idea that somebody once said it, it's impossible to make an anti-war movie, right? Because Mm -hmm. war looks so awesome on the camera, right? I saw saw Platoon this week. So that <laughs> wow. So you have a lot of reasons to be down. <laughs> I am. Well, because here's why I'm down. I'm down because I saw Platoon this week. I'm down because the two blue football teams I root for both lost. And I'm down because the freaking I took so long to get back on the Greyhound bus from New Haven that all of the Hunger Games showings were sold out, and I didn't get to see the movie. And so I'm a little bit bummed. I've I've read the book. I've read all the books, and I love them. And and uh, I mean, the third book deals with this problematization pretty head on. Although we probably shouldn't address. We can talk about that when the third and frickin' fourth movies of this thing come out. Um, but, you know, the second one still leaves the, the problem really out there to sort of address, you know what I mean? But yeah, no, there's a lot of reason to be bummed. And I guess, like, yeah, I mean, Platoon isn't entirely anti-war. Platoon is more like, hey, here are two versions of war. Which one do you like more? Do you like the Willem Dafoe war or the Tom Berenger war? The war where you're, like, smoking pot out of a, out of a gun barrel or the war where you're, like, shooting children for no reason? Uh, Oliver Stone makes, <laughs> makes a really tough choice for you, by the yeah. way. <laughs> it makes it really hard for you to figure out Talk which side you should choice. do. Oh, man, exactly. exactly. Oh, you just blinked yourself. I did. <laughs> hey, can I can I actually bring up one, one thing that you just said? Is you, I mean, you address rating, right? That this is PG thirteen. Yeah. And can we just can we also just really pull off this fig leaf for, for a little bit? Because I feel like a if there was ever a story 
like ever a story where if there was ever any value to seeing a movie with your parents such that they could contextualize what happened for you so that you might better understand it like that's like this this the hunger games would be that story right but that has two preconditions one is that like this ever happens that there's ever uh, that there's ever a situation where the parents should go with you to see the movie to contextualize it and b that like your parents are even capable of contextualizing the story for you in a way that would like ease its effect on your formative thoughts wow this right? is a like, really interesting thought experiment here so let's let's tease it. let's let's play this out right so someone like in an alternate universe there is a hard r version of the hunger games with like really intense violence like yes, you know, yes. as it is described in the book um and uh let's say 14 year old girl goes to see this with her parents like what is that conversation like like <laughs> <laughs> Because it's restricted, except if your parents go with you, then they can clearly de-problematize it for you, right? Like, it help it make sure that it doesn't shatter your emerging worldview. I guess the conversation is like, well, here's the thing. Um, you know, your grandfather had to kill a whole bunch of German and Japanese men. He did both. He was in both places at the same time. Um, but actually, it's the future, so it would be your great-grandfather, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it would just be like, here's Catch-22. Read this and come to dinner, right? Like, I don't know. Like, um <laughs> Yeah, what is the conversation like? Is it like, do you like Katniss is probably when it starts, right? Like, why do you think you like Katniss? Is it because she's like you? Well, yeah, the conversation also is like, you know, how did you feel about this movie? Like, was this violence exciting to watch? Yeah. Did, did this bring you pleasure? You right. Know? And, and, of course, it's, it's easier to, to do that if it's a PG-13. In a way, it's sort of like if, if you're watching a movie from a capital standpoint, it should be PG-13, right? Because the violence is, is it's part of this sort of adventurous, heroic narrative. And it's all sort of, it's drained of all its sort of shock value and all its realism. Whereas that, like, you know, from the perspective of the, of the of, you know, the, the, the territories, the, the, uh, the, the competitors, it really should be like a hard R and the violence is just horrible. And, and nobody's the hero. Nobody's like, you know, nobody really wins the Hunger Games. You just sort of survive them. Yeah, and, those lines are actually spoken yeah. in, in the movie and probably come from the book as well. Yeah, but of, but of course it doesn't feel that way when you're watching it. That because in a way that the the movie is is propaganda. Now what what it's propaganda for is interesting. But like the movie goes through great pains not to portray the violence and all its horrible realism. It goes through great pains to portray to 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 view it through a certain lens by which and 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 once again I think the third the third book really goes to very interesting places to try to almost like, you know, turn the dark mirror on the audience and to sort of like make the audience complicit in, in, you know, rooting for Katniss so wholeheartedly. Yeah. I mean, just to take a brief digression, the movie that does it really well is Inglorious Bastards, right? If you will all remember the Nazi propaganda movie, I believe it's called Nation's Pride, yeah. right? Where like this crowd of Nazis is watching a Nazi sniper just blow away American after American. The crowd is just loving it. They're eating it up. Um, that to me is like was probably one of the most powerful uh, of, of those types of movements, moments I've ever seen in movies. And it'll be very interesting, you're right, to see how that plays out in the third and fourth Hunger Games movies. And I think I mean, even so – so I remember – um, well, not remember, but coming up to Catching Fire and thinking a lot about Mockingjay because it's it's a more comfortable place to be in talking about the Hunger Games books. 
who have read the third one because yeah. as we said like the third one gets us to that sort of comfortable place where we're both kind of like we're comfortable with like meta text and meta theatrics and meta cinematics as a way of eschewing feelings of dread and responsibility although that's not really what it does at all but it, it, there is a sort of relief of tension that comes from well at, le- at least i'm aware of it that actually i, I the, Sheely did this in an improv scene once, which was really funny, where he was like, you know, enumerating all of these horrible things that were happening to people in these like bad poverty situations and, and admitting that he wasn't doing anything about it, but at least he was aware of it, right? Like, and if you were aware of it, that's somehow better. So if we're somehow aware of how us looking at Katniss is like, is dark, well, then that, well, that certainly makes it less bad. Well, not really. So, okay, so let's sort of, because it's the same, like, we still participated in it. Like, I'm still not at a place where I'm going to stop watching football. Right. So again, the, the tougher challenge is then to step back to like the catching fireplace where the catching fireplace, uh, <laughs> uh, where, where we're still watching the football. Right. We're like we're like watching the helmet helmet contact. Right. Like we're like Eli Manning is down on the ground rolling around because somebody bashed his helmet into his helmet, which didn't happen in the game. But like, let's just say <laughs> it did. Um, yeah. like, but I mean, I, I hear that the the actual uh, replay of the Hunger Games themselves don't start until relatively late in the movie. It's like an hour and a half into the movie before they go into the arena again. And the, the thing is that, like, you know, we're overthinkers, and we I think we approach this on a different level than a lot of the sort of casual Hunger Game fans who are probably just sort of impatiently waiting for, like, the action to start. <laughs> yeah, just like all the people who didn't want to see the tour of the White House and White House Down are just like, when is Channing, Channing Tatum going to get in his undershirt? <laughs> That's last week's episode. Watch, listen to last week's episode if you didn't, because that was a lot of fun. But yeah, but it's like... How do we how do we wrestle with this idea of actually wanting Katniss to win, kind of like without without kind of disentangling it by like releasing the tension with meta criticism, right? Like without sort of letting ourselves off the hook by showing that see this is a dark mirror, therefore everything's okay. Like like how do we be okay with Katniss as the protagonist uh, when? Clearly, the whole thing is just such a huge, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, not, it's not a competition that should be happening I mean, if, you know, if you know we were to ascribe to things that we say. I mean, right? like, Pete, you are doubtlessly familiar with the Arnold Schwarzenegger classic, uh, The Running Man. Yes, yes. Which has much the, a very similar plot in which like a, a man uh, has to run through a, goth, a gauntlet of, uh, you know, a televised contest in which uh, various sort of assassins will attempt to take him down. And if he survives, he wins his freedom. But the, I mean, the, the big thing about that is that is clearly a satire. That is a satire of like uh, television and modern American culture. Yep. And this is not as clearly supposed to be tongue in cheek. This doesn't have this sort of like Starship Troopers wink at itself yeah yeah i think that's what makes it challenging because it, it does in, in, in more than just indict us it like brings us on katniss's side in like a very real and meaningful way and i mean some of it is about you know gender identity and, and you know some of it is about you know adolescence and our identification with the struggles of coming of age right like and some of it is about love you know and then anxieties around love and these are all reasons why we'd identify with katniss and support her as she's doing this thing um I mean, but, but also but this we, thing is is murdering other people. What? I mean, I don't know. It's like, do we identify with Cadmus or do we identify with the Capitol in a way? Like when we're watching the movie, are, are we any different than the sort of people in the Capitol eating their popcorn and placing bets on who lives and who dies? Uh, well, we, we get to feel superior to them, right? Because we're on the side of the good guys. Right, because at least we're aware of, you know, right? But the, I mean, like, we're, we're, still, we're still paying our money in part to see the Hunger Games. 
Well, yeah, yeah. This yeah, is but- my point. This is the donkey effing conundrum, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which is that you want to see Titania F the donkey. You know, that's why you're there. It's not see, I, it's I, not for the marriages at the end, you know. I mean, I also sort of see it as us living in a Rambo 1 world, but like <laughs> wanting to live in a Rambo 2 world. <laughs> and I mean, can you I, unpack I, that? Yeah, yeah. well cuz like Rambo 1 is about the Vietnam veteran. Again, I got Vietnam in the brain cuz I watched Platoon this week, but like Viet- Rambo 1 is about a Vietnam veteran who's abandoned by society, right? Who like goes on kind of a has like a standoff with the law enforcement and ends up shooting a bunch of people with a big gun right and like it's very sad and he's homeless and he's kind of a drifter right and then like it's first blood right and it's like the home front right and then rambo 2 is like rambo gets sent on a mission to uh basically like win the vietnam war single-handedly in the yeah. 80s using like two inefficient steroids and a big machine gun right like and, and a helicopter and a helicopter and all this other cool stuff and the, the idea that like um, I mean, I just, I just remember. This is really powerful feeling from childhood for me. This idea of the Cold War and being this thing that hung over everybody's life, and uh, it was this constant threat to your safety that was just incomprehensible. And just what a release and relief it was to see it from the standpoint of a hero who was fighting a villain, right? And, and uh, I mean, I know that that's pretty. We've talked about this a lot before on the podcast of like. And we even talked about it last week, where like taking all of the evils of the world and and putting them in a face that I can punch is like a very a, a thing that makes you feel better. And that's one of the sort of political purposes of gladiatorial combat, I suppose. Is like, I guess the lesson is. Um, the, the thing is that Rambo 2 is claiming that it's taking all the faces, all of the evils of like economics and political intrigue that are really complex but are actually evils that are actually threatening you, right? Like, and puts them in a face that Rambo can punch or shoot, right? And in that way, like, sort of coalesces all of the problems, and then those things act as a proxy and make you feel better, even though they're much more difficult. But we could take it even a step further and say, like, it doesn't even matter if the face that is standing in for all of the problems really does have anything to do with the problems that we're actually anxious about, right? Like, it's like, it doesn't, I mean, like, is it really, like, are all the things in my life that I'm unhappy about really Tony Romo? Like, no, Tony Romo has nothing to do with any of them, except for at one point having dated Jessica Simpson. Well, no, that doesn't add, that's neither here nor there. But, um, but you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. And I guess it, in terms of the Hunger Games, it's like the Capitol watching the, the tributes kill each other in a sense, they're seeing a, 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 a recreation of their own history uh, in a way that they can comprehend and makes them feel better about it. The difference is that we, seeing the tributes fight each other, aren't seeing our own history. The conflict between the tributes is entirely imagined. And as we've pointed out on the site before, like fantastical and absurd. You know, the idea of like highly specialized production areas that have no intermediate goods. Like it's, an, it's a fantasy economy, right? Like it's an economy that, that doesn't exist. And it's one that when we're watching it, we still manage to see the people that, that Katniss is, is fighting as embodiments of evils that we ourselves might identify with. Like in our lives, even though they're children. I mean, in this one, they're not children. But in the first one, they're children. Uh, from imaginary children, from an imaginary land where imaginary things happen. Um, I mean, I don't know. That was a lot of ranting. Yeah, um, but that says but, more. I mean, I don't know. For me, that says more about projection, right, than it does about uh, about the like the literary sen- or cinematic art of whatever version of the the. Oh yeah, no, no, I was. I was- yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the Hunger Games the you're watching, right? Like, like the the Hunger Games is not a is not an achievement of world 
building the way like Lord of the Rings or I don't know Game of Thrones or I, I mean Song of Ice and Fire rather or even like Harry Potter is an achievement in in world building. It's really the the it's really an achievement in interiority and like one of the things we've talked about in our one of our previous Hunger Games podcasts and I, I forget exactly who said it was that like the 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 thing that that Suzanne Collins does in the book is kind of let us inside the head of this character uh you know who is um uh you know very well drawn right not not sort of i don't know not consistent and not perfect and not everything you know we might wish a hero to be but like uh you know i don't know very human and very very flawed and very uh uh very realistic in in that sense in that you know she's she's sort of full of contradictions and tensions rather than being sort of uh and uh, you know and i don't know i think that that's that's like that's what we identify with isn't it like uh, you know i don't know i ha- i have an interiority as richly drawn as as katniss everdeen's right like i <laughs> I, I am vast. I too contain multitudes. <laughs> Just like the bed of the all new Chevy Silverado, which will contain multitudes. <laughs> them to various large piles of dirt in a fictional city, in a fictional landscape. Right. And so when, once you've done that, once you've sort of identified with, once you've sort of identified on that level, it's it, all the rest is, is projection, right? Because you can, um, you can sort of you can sort of map your your enemies or map the things you don't like onto the the you know myriad injustices large and small. Um, yeah. So here's an interesting uh, episode of uh, so here's an episode interesting episode of mapping uh, that that I was doing in in the movie or subscribing things to. Um, there's a particular scene uh, when uh, Peta and Katniss are in the Capitol. They're at a big party, and someone is. Uh, is is telling to Peta, you know, who, who says he's full, and like I'm not going to eat this uh, macaron. Um, you know, says, oh, just drink this. And Peta's like, what does this do? This will, um, it'll make you sick, so you can throw up, so that you can eat more food. And Peta's like, oh, that's terrible, and you're you're meant to feel that 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 is awful as well. But then I was reminded of a true story that I heard about people who go to like very fine upscale, uh, like three hundred dollar prefix restaurants in New York City that come with like fourteen courses. That have done exactly that. I mean, no. without like the specific beverage, but like have like booted to make room to make room for the Is extra extra plates. I'm, I am told. I have read a, a a news story from a reputable source of news that purports that to be true. And like I, that's so, my, so that's, I read it. Like, oh my gosh! Like I'm New York City. I'm the capital. The capital is us. <laughs> I, I, I read a book called Service Included. That is the account um, from a waiter at uh, Per Se uh, w- during its its opening, which is the you know the fancy Thomas Keller New York restaurant um, that says not not intentionally but unintentionally uh, something that happens there a lot more than you'd expect is that uh, the patrons throw up because they're eating so much more and drinking so much more wine. Uh, than they're used to that they get uh they get drunk and boot um and that there is a uh like there is like an expensive uh, <laughs> like uh uh procedure that involves like cleaning products that won't you know uh compromise the olfactory experience of the other the other patrons and and uh, this elaborate kind of choreographed ballet that goes on around uh uh you know around patron vomit but i you know i don't know about like uh i don't know about people heading to the bathroom and inducing uh inducing vomiting that's that's you know yeah 
Um, and, and this is one of the great things about the Hunger Games is that, like, you know, Mark and I live in Manhattan. So we, if, if anybody lives in the capital, it's it's us. And yet, like, you know, my reaction to that story, I think Mark's too, is like, oh, we're not those people. Like, that's like, you know, those are the rich people. Those are the real aristocrats in Manhattan. And so it's like, I, you know, nobody thinks that they're the capital. <laughs> Yeah, but everybody, uh, sure, nobody thinks that they're the capital, but everyone is the capital to someone else, right? Right. Yeah. Like, you know, I I, sort of, look, we all live in kind of major metro areas, right? And our our rents are uh, higher in some cases by like an order of magnitude than they would be if we lived in... Uh, I don't know, smaller, smaller cities, you know, smaller non-coastal cities or uh, non-urban areas. Right. And so the, the income that it takes to to support that rent is is higher by by order and order or orders of magnitude. And so, right, like the uh, you know, you're you're the capital to someone, right? Every every everybody is somebody. Yeah. Everybody is somebody's capital, except District 12, which is like rural West Virginia. Well, that's a, this part is an interesting. An yeah, it's interesting like Har- it's like Harlan County or something like that, right? Like so, like so. This makes um, the way we're describing it. Two two things struck came to mind. Uh, sort of historical context for this, right? One was like, okay, so there's vomitoriums and gladiatorial combat, right? That are involved in what we're talking about, which are both from Rome. Right, and then there's a lot of there's a lot of demonization of Rome that happens in our culture that I think is in politically tied to Protestantism, right? The idea that Rome is decadent and awful, and you don't want to be part of Rome's excesses, and and Rome fell, and we can't be like Rome, right? And a lot you're of you're talking about, about a Rome that is both Catholic as well as sort of pagan and imperial, right? Right. Well, yeah, you're, you conflate the two so that you make people feel bad about like what's going on now, which isn't vomitoriums and gladiatorial combat in the same way that it was, right? It's like, um, you know, this old world stuff that we don't want to be part of. We want to be part of this new world, right? Like we want to be part of this, like, if not a new, a new world is sort of the American way of describing it, but, you know, we want to be part of a simpler, truer, truer to ourselves kind of way of life. And for me, this, this is tied up in the American idea of like the yeoman farmer, right? Like, which is also tied up in sort of like populist, uh, populist uh, rhetoric and, and literature um, in, in, you know, industrial, like Dust Bowl, but also coal mining, like, like a lot of stuff from the 30s, a lot of Steinbeck stuff, right? Like, um, which is tied up in this idea that the, 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 the common people have a decency, which is what can save us from the decadence of our legacy of, uh, of what's referred to by Ben Franklin as what European centuries of European mischief, right? Like, and that, and that there's a way of life that gets us away from these problematic, uh, shows of excess that are inhuman and unethical that gets us away from gladiatorial combat that gets us away from vomitoriums. That's about the simple life, right? Like I'm, I'm thinking about like Quakers and Afghans and like the freaking song that was always played by the middle school violin ensemble right like the gift to be simple song right this idea that (laughs) and like so that's that's the vision of of a life without the hunger games and that's and that is bound up in sort of what where district 12 is located in appalachia i think is tied into these ideas of like you know Urban poverty, uh, rural poverty in the Great Depression, you know, like the Dust Bowl, tenant farmers, like the Quakers, like freaking like the, the, you know, pre-Cromwell roundheads, right? Like all this stuff is all tied together in this idea that we can get away from it. But do not – does not Appalachia have its gladiators, right? Like are you going to tell me they don't watch football, 
right? Like, are you going to tell me that the coal miners in District 12 don't go home if they had an option, wouldn't go home and like drink a beer and watch a football game, right? Like, or that they wouldn't also, you know, like love their all new Chevy Silverado that's all shiny, <laughs> right? And it's like, it's special and they want to have a special car, or a special hat, or a special thing, you know, like, anyway, um, I'm floating two ideas at once and I should back away from it and let other people talk. Um, it's just like, it's just, it's because it's this idea of a life that can get us away from these vices. But does it, you know, in practice, really? So, I mean, your, your point is that it's Hunger Games all the way down. I mean, I suppose. But at the same time, these things exist aspirationally, too, right? Like, it's not like life is always the Hunger Games. That's, that's, that's one of the problems, I think, with uh, – it's not a problem with the Hunger Games books, really. But it's a problem of sort of dwelling within the Hunger Games fantasy life. Right, um, which is, and it also it's 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 more of telling in something like Game of Thrones, um, where there's a more thorough world to build. Although I think maybe even more telling in like Tolkien, where it's like people aren't always bringing the ring to Mordor. Like that's not always what's happening. You know, like people aren't always involved in like the 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 cutting edge of the war against oppression. Right, like it's the whole like yes, just because thou art virtuous, do you think there'll be no more cakes and ale? Right, like, and that's one of the things that Game of Thrones actually does. At least the books do is like, hey, they ate dinner and it was awesome, and that's why that, those scenes are important. Yeah, in, no, it goes, it goes right. It sort of it goes on and on and on. And and the the analog of the of all the food descriptions where uh, you know George gets to you know George likes his uh, his like peas porridge and bacon, right? Like um, Suzanne Collins likes her uh, likes her gowns, you know, likes her like dressing up. Um, dressing up gowns. This is the, uh, and, uh, right. There's, there's always like this elaborate description of, you know, I don't know what, who are you wearing tonight? Oh, this, <laughs> this is a Cinna, right? And, uh, th- this is the, it, it always like the, these in, in fiction, these kind of heights of exaltation and degradation seem to like go together. You can't, you can't just have degradation without kind of a, an, a, an opposite pole of exaltation to um you know to uh compare it against um and 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 also i think this is a difference between like novel storytelling and honestly like tv serialized storytelling which we've all gotten so used to because those are the kind of the most influential and and compelling and powerful narratives that that are available to us right now and um and film storytelling right like film storytelling works well in this like many years ago a prophecy was foretold that you know there would be a chosen one who would deliver us from from pink hair but uh the <laughs> the uh you know uh the kind of longer form storytelling doesn't and life you know doesn't conform to that doesn't sort of conform to that model so i don't know i don't i don't mind i don't mind hero's quest or sort of hero stories um uh, right like i don't think they're sort of less uh, as stories because they don't represent life as i live it though i mean that's a straw man that's not exactly what you were that's not exactly what you were arguing pete is it uh, no, no, it's not. But I mean, it, it does. It, I think it's just, it's sometimes, it's amazing how it's sometimes frustrating that art can't do everything at once. Right, of course. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. I, get, I, get exactly, I get exactly what you're saying. And actually, you know what, where, where I get this is, is actually in the, some of the supporting young characters in, um, 
the Hunger Games, who like aside from aside from Jenna Malone, who makes like this just astonishing and you know hilarious uh, appearance uh, where she does like a little striptease in in, in the elevator, um, just to make Jennifer Lawrence uncomfortable. <laughs> She's just being a jerk, um, and it's uh, it's it's hilarious, right? Like aside aside from her, uh, most of the other like young people are kind of forgettable. Uh, uh, in the movie, and especially especially the guys, and this is like summed up very well in the. I don't know if you've seen the Onion video review of the Hunger <laughs> Games, <laughs> but uh, yeah. in the Unger, Onion video review, there is a uh, a middle aged man, you know, looking kind of stern and full of gravitas, and he has like NPR voice, you know, he has professor voice, um, and he gives a fourteen year old girl's. Review, well, that's I'm sorry, that's trivializing. I don't mean it like that. He gives a a uh, like a kind of boy crazy fan. Review of the Hunger Games, where he's like, um, and he, she tries to save the world with with Peta, who all things considered isn't even that hot. I mean, Josh Hutcherson is okay; he's cute, but not hot. I think that Liam Helmsworth is a lot hotter than Josh Hutcherson, and he sort of goes on this way, like, <laughs> yeah, it's like Gail is super hot. <laughs> I remember that line; that was funny. <laughs> and, then, and then he holds up a uh, like a scrapbook on which there are like you know a, a decoupage of cutout photos from um, a Tiger Beat, and is like, "This is my notebook of hot boys. You can see <laughs> that I have all of One Direction and Justin Bieber, and even Josh." do him out because even though he's old i still like him and uh, <laughs> you know and uh, right and on and on and on and like that's you know that's what they're there for right like Peta doesn't need an interiority right like gail doesn't need an interiority he needs big lips to brood with <laughs> right and that's what you know and that's um like that's the achievement of the movie i think like is like pairing a really kind of interesting and sort of compelling character in Katniss with a super interesting and like fantastic actor in in Jennifer Lawrence and she is she is almost like uh, she's transcendently good right like uh, she's better than the material deserves in in a lot of ways because it's it's so i don't know she's so alive and she's so unaffected and she's so human and i really like admire a lot of stuff about uh her achievement in in acting and you know she has an academy award and like is is very very good at this um but uh but like i i had the thought watch it walking out of that movie that like well you know, I don't know. Some of those other characters were a little were a little two dimensional, right? Um, and and that's of course not the point. That's not even close to the point. But it, but it is it is a little disappointing sometimes that that art that art can't do everything. But I guess the I guess the point I want I want to make sort of in dialogue with what you were bringing up, Pete, is that like everything is is what everything is. The everything the set of things that you want art to do is discursively determined, right? Like, and there are other yeah. times in other places where it, everything actually is a different everything than the everything that we um, uh, that we want art to do, right? Where yeah. where they have asked for for uh, different things from art, moral clarity, for example. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, one, one might even describe the 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 spread between the everything <laughs> that you want and the set of things that you have as a form of hunger and manipulation <laughs> and the manipulation and alteration of which everything people want you to want as a game of hunger. Where it, <laughs> 
are manipulated to aspire to different sorts of things. Um, actually, can I ask a question? Since I didn't even see the movie, you, you know, you know what I want, Pete? I want a Chevy Silverado because <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that that is a uh... all new. You have to say all new, or else they shut on the TV forever, and you never get to watch football game. I want an all new Chevy Silverado. The football game, right? Because the the donkey show is ending thanks to Obama, who's going to shut down. All of the uh, all of the vice things that people like, um, but you mentioned the minor characters, and I wanted to, this makes me sad to hear that the minor the minor male characters in particular are two dimensional because there's a brief interjection that like I mostly agree with Matt, but they are not quite as two dimensional as they were in the first movie. Like they're much they're they're better acted. Like they're much more interesting to watch uh, in this one compared to the yeah, first and one. and but, by the way, also like the adult supporting cast are like our superstars, like Woody Harrelson. Oh, Stan- we should put a pin on that and come back to them. So go on, Pete. Yeah. So there's there's a there's a young actor who's in this movie uh, named Alan Richson who plays the part of Gloss, and and I don't know who how that plays out in the movie. He's like from District One, right? And the thing about Alan Richson is that he's in a show that I've been watching a lot of right now on Netflix uh, called Blue Mountain. State, uh, which is a very, uh, I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast before, I won't go into too much length about it. It's a very crass, uh, like, sex farce television show about a college football team, right? Like that, uh, and it's really, I really like it. It's like very, it's, it does a lot of objectionable things, so, you know, if you want to judge, like, you know, get in line. But um, it's just a very fun and well, I think it's a well-crafted farce. And uh, the character that this guy creates on this show is this really fun and really cool character. He's like the captain of the football team who is at once like unassailable and like shrieking and totally vulnerable, right? He's like, he's like, you know, utterly masculine and demanding, but also like uncomfortably homoerotic and strange, right? Like he's at once like luminary among his peers and also like an enti- total embarrassment, right? Like there's like whole, there's a whole mythology around his dad who died in Afghanistan and like left him like a collection of various aids he uses for you know, like, like lascivious reasons and stuff. And, and it's just like, it's such a fun character and an interesting, cool character that I feel like is really well acted and it's really not that common that you see like uh, an actor who sort of looks and acts like this which is sort of like diesel and built and like clearly like has electricity removed all his body hair or whatever um, actually play like a competent comedic role right which is like and like oh this is really interesting I really wonder what he does in the movie I suspect he probably just scowls and like gets shot at Right, like um, I think he gets killed with an arrow through the head in the book. I don't know what happened. If yeah, happens. he he's dispensed with he's dispensed with very quickly. Oh, oh, really? Okay, <laughs> so they don't. Oh, that's a shame. See, that makes me sad because I feel like he's really good, and it's a shame that uh, he didn't get a chance to shine. If other people from Blue Mountain State were also in that, then I would also like Denise Richards, <laughs> uh, who's also in that show. You, you want to go back to the supporting cast because, like Jeffrey Wright, Amanda Plummer. Uh, you know, I don't know, Woody Harrelson, Stanley Tucci, a guy named Toby Jones, who was in the other Truman Capote movie that was not the Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, Philip Seymour freaking Hoffman, right? Stanley Tucci. Uh, yeah, the, the cast in this movie is really incredible. The, the, the adult supporting cast. Lenny Kravitz has, has been very good, <laughs> and he, he won't appear, you know, well, <laughs> spoiler alert. Uh, he won't appear in the third movie, right, because they, I think they kill him, but uh, you, though, of course, you don't see that that um they could put him in there they they don't there's nothing that says he can't be in it right like yeah, I mean, he's, he's not got like well, a black eye or a split lip or something or you know i don't know yeah. <laughs> walks with a limp walks with a sexy sexy limp for the rest of his life 
<laughs> Doesn't he do that already? Doesn't Lenny Kravitz already kind of swagger a little bit as if his patellar tendon is broken? Yeah. But anyway. Um, but yeah, so the supporting cast in this movie is just as strong, if not stronger, than it was in the first movie. Yeah, I, I mean, they're, they're, they're super good. And actually, I mean, I know I've, I've been ragging on the... Um, I've been ragging on on the kids, but actually Willow Shields as Prim like has a moment in this movie that I think is like is very well it's very well conceived and directed and it's very well it's very well acted by her as you see her kind of coming into her own and kind of coming of age as a nurse right which is the thing that we know she becomes um uh because her her mom had been like a uh what mid midwife and traditional healer and stuff like that and she sort of becomes a nurse and will join the resistance in book 3 as a like a medical uh as a medical person and like you know so like there are there are um there thing there are like some good people in it but 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 the the movie i mean it struck me since you know since we're coming down to our last like 5 minutes of podcasting i guess it's time oh, to geez. talk about it's time to talk about the film a little bit <laughs> like, like, um it struck me as like a very good movie uh coupled with an okay movie and the okay movie was the violent stuff the the scares and the the arena and the um the you know the actual hunger hunger games when when Katniss gets sent back into the arena because it's a uh, uh, a plot for Donald Su- oh Donald Sutherland how could I not say Donald Sutherland like <laughs> Donald Sutherland I don't know uh, who is yeah like, he he eats up and spits out every scene that he's in he's I'm the, the guy's I, good actor doesn't do it justice I mean the guy is a legend uh, but anyway right like uh, that that's all okay and the action is is fine I suppose. It's it's probably above the median for, you know, yeah. for these this kind of action movie, especially given the, again better than the first movie. Yeah, well, right. The 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 I'm sorry. The first movie was like uh, the first movie was like an embarrassment. It was like a shaky cam embarrassment. And like I don't know. I I heard a rumor among my like entertainment industry friends out here in L.A. that that actually the the like the two good sequences in uh, in the first movie were in fact directed by Steven Soderbergh, who is inexplicably <laughs> friends with Gary Ross. Um, is Gary Ross a jerk? Uh, I think he's just not, I think he's just not, uh, overthinkable. Oh, okay. But yeah. maybe they like, well, maybe they play Xbox together. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I'm saying like inexplicably given their, le- their relative level of talent as, as Oh, filmmakers. I'm just saying that it shouldn't be inexplicable by any, why anyone would have friends. Cause people have value, but anyway, continue. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, uh, right, but then there is a good movie at at the beginning, and, and the good movie is about like life under totalitarian control. Speaking of, you know, I don't know. Speaking of God winning the podcast, right? Like, uh, is is about and and it's very you know it's very bleak and these. Um, a lot of sort of communist looking you know cement edifices a lot of like jackbooted stormtroopers in uh helmets and masks like you know double timing it you know down in order to like flog someone in the square you know a lot of like teeth licking uh evil villain head of the security forces um, head of the security forces stuff, and it really sort of manages to to evoke this uh, uh, right evoke this um, this thing in a way that 's kind of not 
it, you know, I don't know. It's not old timey. It's not old timey, nostalgic, simpler life stuff. It's, uh, it's wow. It really, uh, it really sucks to live under the boot of an occupying force, uh, stuff. And then the, the, the second part of that is the kind of the gradually dawning horror of, um, uh, uh, of kind of Jennifer Lawrence's new life, um, w- which is like uh, uh, summed up by Woody Harrelson when he says, you'll never get off this train. Speaking of the, like, the train that's taking them on their propaganda tour as victors. Um, the train is a metaphor. Well, yeah. Like you'll never, like the, the train never stops, right? Like you, you're now a part of the machinery uh, that churns to, to keep the people in line, you know? And... Uh, and you will live a relatively uh, you will live a relatively privileged life uh, that will be horrifying to you because um, uh, you understand uh, better than anyone else your complicity uh, in a system that is causing you and your your uh, comrades to suffer right like that and that's that's to me the good part of the movie and then and then when the the actual hunger game started it was kind of like okay you know We've been ooh, here before, ooh, yeah like ooh scary monkeys <laughs> yeah <laughs> the, the hunger games part of it was 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 reasonably well done and but there was sort of this like predictable sense of like danger 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 release attention safety safety uh oh! Here comes danger, 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 danger! Right, um, and, and it, it, none of it says that was that in and of itself was not bad, but it was not interesting in the same way that that first two thirds, of the first two acts of the movie were interesting, right? And just to to, to piggyback on um, what Matt was saying or what we were saying earlier about this idea of world building, right? Like that's the part of the movie that was doing starting to do some interesting world building, where if it had time, extra time. Uh, it could have really started to do something uh, very interesting, describing the the world in which you know District Twelve and Panem exist. Um, but it, it 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 reminds me as well of uh, it started had me thinking about Ender's Game, right? The other big budget uh, young adult book addict adaptation of this uh, fall uh, movie season, right? In which we complained a lot about the pacing of Ender's Game and how it just sort of really did a forced march through all of the. the uh, the good parts of the book, and I definitely felt that less for this movie. In fact, I thought that it was paced reasonably well, but I'm still left um, thinking again about the artificial constraints of making a movie in the roughly two to two and a half hour uh, long range that it sort of forces filmmakers, when they're, especially when they're doing these book adaptations, to you know to to rush through some of the interesting parts. And I can't help but think that, like you know, as we move to sort of a, a post. Um, you know, uh, post-movie, post-structured uh, television world that uh, this sort of thing 20 years from now could be split up into uh, three or four one-hour segments. You know, just whatever chopped-up thing that w- would actually make better sense for the story rather than the constraints forced upon it by commercial reasons. Yeah, you know, I don't know. There's something about that uh, yes, sorry, I'm I'm not not to poop on your point. Yes, I agree. I agree with you that it would be interesting to see like wh- if the format weren't so tightly constrained, what you could do. But there's something about that like two hour, you know, plus or minus half an hour, right? Like there's something about that like ninety to one hundred and fifty minute time slot that like that seems to be a sweet spot for a certain kind of storytelling. And, and I'm thinking now of theater, right? What, which is an, uh, a, an art form with a lot 
longer history than uh, than cinema, but from which cinema, like especially 19th century European theater, like derives a lot of its dramaturgy. Um, the the uh, there's something about that um, that two hour sweet spot that's good for telling a certain kind of story. But yeah. but where I agree with you is like it's sort of the shoehorning of the shoehorning of other stories into that. I mean, and not that, you know, adaptations have always been with us. You know, it's not that like there's more or they're worse uh, now. I mean, there have always been good adaptations and there have always been bad adaptations as long as there has been cinema. But, but, um, but what it does, uh, the, the kind of breaking free of the format, the kind of post TV post movie age that you identify does seem to offer a little freedom. I, I hope it offers a little freedom to say, well, what is the best format for this material and let, let form follow function, uh, a little bit more rather than like, rather than something like, well, the, the, there's a lot of material in the fourth book. So let's break it up into two movies or more cynically, like we would like we would like two paydays instead of just one. So let's break the third, uh, let's break the third book into two movies. Um, you know, what, what if the whole thing were a uh, 13 episode miniseries? Like I, you know, I don't know for me, there's something about the, uh, something about the, um, 13 episode series that, <laughs> that like has a special length that is good for, uh, that is good for like one arc of, you know, prestige, prestige television. And I suppose that is as much a, uh, as much a straight jacket as anything else. Um, yeah. Is it really though? Is it as much a straight jacket as like an occupying force that's you know, crushing your family and destroying your way of life? I'm saying, um, I'm saying that having to shoehorn, you know, an ep- a season of the wire into, um, you know, who else wanted to shoehorn a, a season of the wire into 13 episodes? The all new Chevy Silverado. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I, I was. Now you're s- getting it, Matt. <laughs> now you're getting it. Uh, I was. I was going to say Hitler. Oh, <laughs> that was my second guess. <laughs> no, no, no. I think what we're saying is that Hitler had a has Chevy Silverado. He wouldn't have to, you know, try to squeeze so many things into a small space. He'd have a big trunk in which he could just, you know, evenly spread out the material. <laughs> Can I just say real, real fast? Listen, like, listen if, if Hitler had an all-new Chevy Silverado, we'd all be speaking German now, because <laughs> we're no way Stalin <laughs> was going to stop him on the <laughs> Eastern Front. You know? no. That's Poland the point. Is not ready for this. Born in America is what the deal is with that car, even if parts of it are made in the Philippines or something. I don't even know. And also, we hope all of our, our readers and listeners in the Philippines and their families are doing alright, and we send out our hopes for you guys. Uh, I feel like I can't. This is the this is the oppression of like not oppression because not oppression. This is like, uh, this is like the, 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 the this is the hunger of the game of cultural criticism. I like that. Can't even mention the Philippines without like mm. hoping that they weren't all killed in a typhoon because I really don't want them to all be killed in a typhoon. Not Philippines is what like their district seven or eight. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. Right. Like. Um, <laughs> this is something that facetiously I think from time to time, Pete, and I say it not to be ungenerous to you, uh, but I think like, you know, you should think about how privilege is hard on me too. you know, enjoying, <laughs> enjoying so much privilege really can be a pain in the neck, you know? <laughs> Well, I, I will. I will say. I'll say that, like, sometimes it's like I'm full. I'm not hungry for privilege anymore, right? I'm full. You know. Is there Harvey. Uh. <laughs> Bobby. 
Oh, man. All I was going to say was that if the movie really paints the t- a picture of the totalitarianism and how bad it is, we've talked a lot about gladiatorial combat, and we've talked a lot about how the Hunger Games... It's often... People often look at bread and circuses, and they say the culture that gives rise to bread and circuses has to be decadent and broken. But from the way that you're describing it, it's not Katniss that's the problem, really. I mean, like, the Hunger Games themselves are barbaric. But, like, if you just took Katniss's publicity tour through Panem and just had them go through, like, modern-day North Carolina, would it really be so bad? Right, like, like, is it? Is there something that's wrong about the so? Is there something that's so wrong about Katniss touring around and being a celebrity that like it's indivisible from the totalitarian government that forces her to do it? Uh, and I'm asking this because I didn't see the movie, so I don't know whether it's it's or is it? Are they really operating on two different scales or two different systems here? Um, like one for celebrity and the value of celebrity and the affixation with celebrity, and one for like the horror of oppression. Um, because in the in the Running Man, they're they're portrayed as sort of the same, like as, as sort of indivisible and as part of a satire. Yeah, I mean the idea. <laughs> the, uh, how is it done in Blue Mountain State? Um, the idea. Is... <laughs> <laughs> we could we'll do a separate podcast on Blue Mountain. <laughs> it, uh, uh, well, right. Like the, the idea though is that that the um, the publicity tour is inseparable from the Hunger Games, right? Like the Hunger Games comprises everything from the announcement through the reaping, through the games themselves, through uh, the pl- publicity tour. Uh, the publicity tour after it's all i mean it's all part of the same kind of media media package right it's all the same episode of uh or it's all the same series of like uh dance moms or here comes honey boo boo or something here comes honey boo boo with like a, <laughs> a a deadly bow and arrow you know i mean and to, to answer your question the way it works in blue mountain state <laughs> is that the protagonist doesn't like to get hit as a football player so he doesn't like to work hard but if the football team does poor, so he wants to party rather than play football but if he parties too much then the football team loses because they didn't work hard enough and then they can't party because no one wants to party with them so there's like a social reinforcement <laughs> idea that they have to like at some point put in some sort of check on their partying so that they can win the football games and then party. So like in that case there there's there's an aroboros of state school football that happens in that show. But uh, I don't think the Hunger Games is probably all that similar. But then again, they're probably not hungry for jello shots. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think we should probably leave it there for this week. Um, if you would like to join the conversation on the Hunger Games, uh, on the film, on the books, uh, mark spoilers clearly uh, and leave a comment on the show notes for this episode. You can also email podcast at overthinkingit.com or call or text 203-285-6401, but no one ever does that. Um, so, you know, um, uh, may the comments be ever in your favor. May the flame war uh, be – no, our notoriously civil comments section won't tolerate any uh, any flame wars. Um, we'll be back with more uh, next week. Oh, I wanted to tease something that's coming out. Um, if you're uh, listening to this podcast, you can go to Overthinking It and see our holiday gift guide. Um, and this is something that I'll hit a lot harder on future podcasts. But uh, the gift guide is something that we do every year, and it's uh, it's an occasion to talk about things we like, and it's also occasion to dump 
dump a bunch of Amazon affiliate links into a post uh, where if you click on uh, any of our links, enter Amazon from one of our links or from the link in the sidebar on the homepage and buy literally anything from Amazon, we get a small kickback. It doesn't raise your price, but we uh, partake in the the profit as you know affiliate marketers uh, for them. And this is a, a, a big thing for us every year. It gives us a non-negligible uh, portion of our income uh, for every year. So uh, when you're doing your holiday shopping online, and come on, you don't go to actual stores anymore, do you? Uh, like a loser? You don't do that. You're not a loser, are you? Uh, when you buy your things on Amazon, uh, click through our links, and we're, we're very grateful for, yeah, the, uh, small, uh, for the small kickback that we get for that. Basically, at this time of the year, you are all the districts. And we are the capital, and you are providing all of your wealth to us. So we really appreciate that. Well, I, I'm not sure. I think I think Jeff Bezos is the capital, right? Like, uh, <laughs> you know, and and uh, and we are. I don't know. We're District One. But who's, who's the capital for Jeff Bezos? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, someone is always the capital. Someone is always uh, selling you something on an affiliate link. Um, you can buy uh, uh, Overthinking It's uh, branded pieces of Alderaan at overthinkingit.com slash store. <laughs> and you can find us at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, yeah, probably doesn't deserve. deserve. This podcast is brought to you by the all-new Chevy Silverado. Yes, You guys didn't realize this, but this podcast uh, is, in a way, an arena, right? And so Belinky is sitting right next to me here, and I have uh, dispatched with him a long time ago. So uh, it's down to just the three of us. Well, I'm just going to keep throwing. If, if this is an arena and this is gladiatorial combat, then like my weapon style is just to like flail with my elbows and a stick as much as possible mm-hmm. in the hopes that nobody can get in a fight edgewise.